Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this week's UFC main card. Paid Bloody Elbow Podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content, if available, at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here are your hosts, Bloody Elbow fight analysts Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Bloody Elbow podcasts are proud to be sponsored by RevGear. They've been a pioneer in the industry and have grown into a formidable brand and true leader in the MMA gear market. Bloody Elbow listeners get 20% off. Go to RevGear.com slash Bloody Elbow email sign up. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Viva section with me, Zane Simon, and my co-hosts. As always, Connor Vibush. That's me, Zane. That's you. Uh, we're back again talking about this week's fight card going down at the Moody Center in Austin, Texas. And uh, how about you, Connor? Are you feeling a little moody about this fight card? No. <laughs> I feel fine. <laughs> What's your fucking problem? <laughs> Starting the show asking me a question like that. What the See, You're folks. Moody. <laughs> this is what we have to deal with here. <laughs> He's just a constant tempest in a team. Who said I'm moody? <laughs> Kill your whole family, you call me moody. <laughs> um, no, I feel pretty good about this card. Yeah, it's it's pretty decent for for Solid. a fight night, especially. Very solid fight night card. I would I would go so far as to say. I mean, we have like a really really good main event, like uh-huh. lightweight top contenders, prospects, uh, breakthrough kind of fight. Like that is sort of the pinnacle of what a fight night main event should be. Yeah. Um. Aside from the fact that it looks like an exciting matchup. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the whole main card is like really solid. And and even down into the prelims, we get a lot of little interesting stories and some a lot of ranked fighters, and looks pretty solid to me. Yeah, four four of the six main card bouts are for a ranking spot, and the featured prelim is for a ranking spot too. Mm-hmm. And like, that's that's more than enough for a fight night card. Can't complain. Nope. Can't complain. Tried. Didn't take. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's let's go ahead and dive in then. We've got plenty to cover here with this main event. Benil Dariush, Armand Saukian. And uh, a and really, you know, I, I feel a little bad for Dariush because he really should be getting that Dustin Poirier fight where... Somebody like asked Dustin Poirier yeah. about it, and Dustin Dustin was like, "Yeah, totally. Dariush is cool." And then like a week later, he came back and was like, "You know, guys, I don't really want that fight." Sorry. I watched some of this fight, and this seems like a kind of guy you could lose for pulling a guillotine against. 
Yeah, and, and more, it, you know, it's also just the like he realized that the only fights he wants are things that can like headline a pay per view. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Dariush is a really good, fun fighter, but not that guy. Yeah, would be yeah. cool, and it would it would feel appropriate for Dariush. I mean, unfortunately yeah. for him, he just he put together a ton of great wins. Finally, got that shot against Charles Oliveira in that sort of echelon of. Uh, ranked and marketable opponents. Yep. And it just didn't work out for him. Yep. But uh, also respect to Dariush, and I'm glad that we have like a um, somebody on that fringe mm-hmm. for Tsarukian to fight. Yeah, because I mean, for Tsarukian, this is also this is the ideal. If I feel a little bad for Tsarukian or for Dariush, Tsarukian's winning. He got the the awesome Absolutely. fight. And this is a fight where if he wins, he's in the title picture, right? Maybe he gets a matchup against one of the big guys one way or the other. It's like he's got every right to call out Islam Makachev and they've got a story there already. Have yep. fought in the past and he's in the picture. So, <clears throat> um, and all of that having been said, this is not a particularly easy fight for me to call. No, because, um, as incredible a prospect as Sorokin has been, and I think it's probably more fair to call him a contender at this point. Yeah. Uh, though still a work in progress and still clearly the, the much younger man. I think he's seven years younger than Dariush. Yeah. 27. To know, to, Dariush is like. Dariush is only 34. He's only 34, but he's, he's, he's aging rapidly in, in like physically. He looks like he's like, 50 almost suddenly yeah it's it's just the gray i think it's just the gray yeah and the fact that we've been seeing it feels like we've been seeing him fight forever because he's been in the ufc since 2014 mm-hmm. um <clears throat> but uh you know despite all that Tsurukyan is like he's so good on the ground that it feels like the, the 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 his game on the feet has had no reason to catch up. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it has started really to catch up until quite recently. Like yeah. even going into that Mateusz Gamrod fight, a fight that I'm still convinced Sorokian won by outstriking Gamrod. Mm-hmm. I do not say that because his striking looked great. Yeah. He made a lot of questionable decisions. Um and, you know, like he, he has continued along that path. I would say I have not seen a striking performance from him that I've been really impressed by until his last two fights. And even in those, some shaky moments, he got jabbed yeah. up a bit by Damir Ismagulov, um, got into trouble whenever he got put on the back foot. That's something we're going to talk about for this matchup. Um. And then against Joachim Silva, largely outstruck him, but also got into some really hairy exchanges throughout the fight mm-hmm. and got really badly hurt at one point. Yeah. Um, but at least he is starting to look more fluid, a little more methodical on the feet, because that is that is the the reason that stands out is the contrast. Sarukian is a really methodical, um, thoughtful grappler. Yeah. Um, who just doesn't do like a lot of crazy low percentage shit. Uh, whereas his striking has always been kind of grab bag. 
mm-hmm. by comparison. Um, anyway, all of that being said, the problem here is that he, his grappling is so good, he's been just crushing everybody in the division, and it's always been a super safe fallback. Even into that Joaquim Silva fight, where he wanted to flex his striking and clearly had done some work, ultimately, it was the grappling that won in the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and saved him when he got into trouble. And as we saw in his fight with Mateusz Gamrot, Benil Dariush is just sort of a hard, hard counter <laughs> for the idea that grappling is going to get you out of trouble. Yeah. Like, Benil Dariush in that fight, I think that might be one of the best fights of his entire career. And he just um, has rock-solid defensive wrestling. He is nigh impossible to outscramble. Mm-hmm. He is a, like Tarukian himself, um, a rock solid positional grappler and a serious submission threat. And uh, I just feel like he might be able to kind of neutralize a lot of Tarukian's A game if he wants to. And if that means we're left in a striking battle, then, as I said, uh, I don't have full confidence in Sarukian's game. And I don't think he does either. I think it's it's still very much a work in progress. He is still very vulnerable when he's put on the back foot. Um, defensively, he puts himself into really shaky positions, particularly when he steps in and throws his backhand. Um by far the best thing about his striking game are his kicks, which are really fast and powerful. But mm-hmm. if he does get pressured by Benil Dariush, those aren't going to be as available to him. And usually when he gets into trouble and gets uh, walked down, again, it is the grappling that gets him out of there. So, um, I don't know. It's a tough one. It is. It looks like Benil is just, other than Islam Makachev, maybe the hardest matchup in the division for a guy like Sarukian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, one of the things, too, that's tough with this is that, like, we did see Benil Daryush get taken down several times by Gamrot mm-hmm. in their fight. But because Gamrot couldn't really just keep control of Dariush and take him out of the fight that way. We also got to see Dariush continue to pressure and Mm -hmm. break Gamrot down in a way that like it felt, you know, if Gamrot wasn't necessarily getting tired his game started to fail him as the, as the fight went on. Yeah, he just didn't didn't have his usual sort of pathways available. Yeah. And yeah, that that makes this hard because I can see like I, I feel like Sarukin has more chance of surviving on his feet than Gamrot does. He's, he's much. He's a more versatile striker. Certainly. Exactly. Yeah. He's not so much of a one-handed, mm-hmm. you know, uh, fighter standing. Mm-hmm. And can't you know Dariush 
while the more comfortable striker, he's no more natural a striker than than Saryukin. He's still. I, I would say before the red mist descends, he is. Okay, I mean, you know, Dar- Daryush has a jab. Daryush has yeah. pretty solid footwork. Um, he gets into a brawl and his form goes to complete shit. Yeah. Uh, in you know, in service of him being incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Uh, but also very vulnerable. Exactly. Um. So yeah, it really depends on how how hairy the fight gets. I would say Daryush is a more comfortable. I mean, go figure. You know, Dariush is is a Hafiel Cordero guy. He's done a yeah. shitload of hard sparring, and we have seen him in fights even as long ago as his fight with like Michael Johnson. I know that was one where everybody thought he robbed Johnson, and that's a fair complaint. But that was a fight where he had a lot of trouble, and slowly over the course of the fight, he's like finding his jab. He's outmaneuvering mm-hmm. Michael Johnson more and more. He is capable of doing that. It's true. It is a tough one. Because the other thing I feel like, too, is Sarukian is a better positionally dominant grappler than Gamrot. Certainly. Gamrot tends to thrive in wanting the scramble. Yeah, he's like an alpha male fighter without the guillotine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He doesn't even go for the submission, really. Yeah. It's all about, like, high repetitive takedowns into initiating scrambles mm-hmm. and just kind of seeing what washes out, you know? it's You, you look at his fights, and up until the the one with Fiziv, it's like four takedowns, four takedowns, six takedowns, four takedowns, five in his debut. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of... And you're just looking at completed takedowns. I mean, how many yeah, does he attempt against? Attempt. How many did he attempt against Sarukian? Against Sarukian, he attempted 21. I mean, <laughs> for five minutes of control. Yeah. For and against Dariush, he completed four. He attempted 19. Yeah. So yeah, really the rinse and repeat king. Mm-hmm. Where Sarukian. If he can find Dariush trying to storm forward on him, mm-hmm. which Gamrot did early in their fight too, it feels a lot more likely that he's going to be able to take more time on top of Gam- of Dariush. Yeah. And get a more dominant and keep a more dominant position. The ability to get any kind of control, um, whether it is with like pace on the feet yeah, or with takedowns and actually maintaining position when he does get them. Um, that, that brings to mind like the one sort of the, the one gut feeling I have about this fight, which is that I would give Armand Surkin an edge because this is a five rounder uh, yeah. for, for pace. Yeah. Because it, I mean, it's very conditional. I think whether Dariush gasses, he is one of these guys. <clears throat> he does get tired, you know, and he, yeah. he doesn't really always maintain his pace very well. He will dump out lots and lots of energy and have to 
straggle along until he maybe gets a second wind or maybe mm-hmm. doesn't. And often you don't realize this because he's just less tired than his opponent. Like when he fought Carlos Diego Fajera, mm-hmm. completely insane fight, but Diego gassed first or yeah. harder. Or it's a fight like Gamrot, where even though Gamrot also has incredible conditioning, arguably better than Sarukian's, because he was being controlled and boxed out of the fight the whole time, Darius never had a chance to get tired. Yep. If and that, Saru- that, that Saru- kind of speaks to Gamrot's limitations on the feet, too. Exactly, yeah. Like, Gamrot can get, be really easily trapped into a really predictable yes. chain. The fact that Sarukian just, I think, has a lot more fight in him uh-huh. uh, is much higher output and more versatile on the feet that when he does actually hit takedowns, because he's a great takedown artist, he can actually keep them and draw his opponent into, at the very least, a really taxing, protracted, I wouldn't even call it a scramble. We're talking like leg ride, yeah, uh, pinned against the fence kind of positions where... Okay, maybe you're slowly inexorably working your way free, but you're fighting for every inch. Because of that kind of ability to inflict a pace on somebody, I do suspect we're going to see Dariush tired in the last couple rounds if it goes that far. Yeah. And that feels like a a good enough advantage for Tarukian for me to pick him. Also, the fact that if somebody gets randomly sparked out, it's probably Dariush. Yeah, I mean... That's just a thing that happens to him sometimes. So you can has never been finished. Yep. And he got rattled, but held it together and, and recovered oh, really well. And fair, 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 fair play. Actually on that, he did get knocked out actually once in the second fight of his career. Okay. Yeah. So it has happened once. So does but it say KO or TKO? Just says lost punch. Okay. At 30 seconds of round one. Which, All right. that's quick enough to make me think it was some kind of flash KO. Probably, yeah. Second pro fight. We, we're not going to say that's indicative of anything, really. No. We've seen Darius have more yeah. moments where he will just get, like, sparked. Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, I, I am going to pick Tarukian. I'm going to just go ahead and pick the younger man, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I seriously think like I, I I'll, I'll say this aside from a possible flash KO, which does happen again. I I would be very surprised and super impressed if this was a remotely easy fight for Tsurukian to win. Yeah, I I think the way I can see this going, and the the reason I'm probably going to side with you and go go with your same kind of pick is. I can. I think there's a good chance Sarukian wins round one. Mm. Just catching Dariush off guard early with mm-hmm. Dariush trying to pressure and maybe getting him down and out grappling him or out wrestling him for a round the same way that Gamrock did. Yeah. And then Sarukian maybe picks up the last couple rounds. After both men are tired. Yeah. I just think That's, he's just better conditioned and, and if, if it I has have, to, well, yeah. it has to be noted. 
Darius has never seen round four. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ever. He has never had to fight past the third round in his whole career. That's crazy. Right? What happens when you're uh, not popular, but too good to get a fight against any of the top guys? Yeah. You know, when you're, you're, you're really good, but you're just not that popular, you don't get main event bookings. Yep. So, I yeah, I'm gonna bank on so you can be in the younger, the younger, fresher fighter, and we've seen how tireless he can be, and he's such a positionally dominant force that I think he can make it work and catch Dariush out in some of his because Dariush, like he, you know, we talk about him being a great. well, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I, I always will kind of... I know it was really early in his career. It's been a long time. But I will always still kind of remember that fight he had against Michael Chiesa. Mm-hmm. Where, like, the tables got turned on him, and his his defense in that situation was not nearly as, you know, as lively as his offense. And I feel like, I I know he's had a lot of good fights against a lot of good fights since then. I still don't feel I have a super great explanation for that one. I think. Yeah. is a really good rear naked choke artist. That is his move. It's true. And it just happened. Yeah. You know, the only time I've seen anybody, quote-unquote out-grapple Benil Dariush, and this was in a fight where Chiesa was actually getting out-grappled for most of it. Yeah, although I sh- it should also be noted that the Charles Oliveira fight, like, the difference between Benil Dariush on top of Charles Oliveira and Charles Oliveira on top of Benil Dariush was yeah. also pretty stark in that fight. Yeah, Dariush was... that. That comes down to the sort of, like, staying calm and managing his pace. Yeah. Like he just got excited in top position and, you know, he did, I mean, defend the first takedown and get a lot of time on top of Charles. Yeah. But, uh, he wasn't, uh, as effective with it as, uh, I had kind of, uh, hoped he would be. No. And Oliveira when, and then when Darius was on his back, he, he got cracked. It's just getting swarmed. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to take too much out of that because so you can. He's. I haven't seen necessarily that kind of laser sharpness out of him as a top control artist. He's sort of, you know, I think more of him in, in like that jo- uh, Joel Alvarez fight where he mm-hmm. was just kind of a thresher, you know, or it's just like consistent. Yeah absolutely punishing output that's maybe going to be harder to maintain on somebody like Dariush than or, just sort of or the, the finish the, the finish he just had against Joachim Silva yeah just Donkey Kong mode <laughs> yeah. yeah whereas you know I think of like Oliveira on top of Dariush was more the Anderson Silva mode mm-hmm. where it's just like these laser shots that are crushing yeah I don't know that so you can can do that but yeah, I have. I just have a feeling that Sarikin's gonna get. He's gonna get some top control, and he's gonna be effective with it for a little bit. 
And then, yeah, it might be the pace and the cardio that saves him late after mm-hmm. a couple of hairy middle rounds where Dariush is putting together the better jab and yeah. being more insistent on pressure. Yeah, I mean, I think this is perfectly timed for Sarukian. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think maybe frustrating for him. I'm sure it was that um, he was kind of, you know, he had that early loss to Makachev, but it was so close. He's been thinking this whole time, I'm going to fight Makachev again, and I have what it takes to beat him. Mm-hmm. And he's been kind of floating around, not quite breaking through for a while. Yeah. But like I said, uh, I think he is finally starting to become the fully rounded uh, martial artist that he should be. And I would love for this to be a fight where we see another level of uh, just rock solid consistency to his striking. Um, I, I think it's a perfect time for a, a really tough test like this that is nonetheless winnable. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Uh, Odd makers, they they like uh, Sarukin a lot here. For some reason, I tend to use the cloud bet odds just because they tend to show the most play in their line, which uh, I I like. I like having, you know, seeing something that's actually moving and not just sort of. But uh, the Bovada line, which seems also generally representative of the the swing across the board, had Dariush open at plus 120 and is currently at plus 193 or even as high as plus 240. And so you can open at minus 155 and currently down at minus 250 and down as low as minus 300 on some lines. I mean, I so. get why he'd be favored. It just seems like the sensible pick, but I'm I'm not that confident. I think people, no. people have a tendency to underrate Benil Dariush. Well, I mean, you also have to, you have to look at that Mateusz Gamrot fight for Saryukin and say, okay, what if you had a striker who was a little more insistent than Gamrot and could scramble with Saryukin as well as Gamrot did? Yeah. I mean, you have to look at both guys' fights. Mateusz Gamrot's a great measuring stick. Yeah. And the fact that Benil, that Gamrot was a guy who took Saryukin down more and more as the fight went on. Mm Mm-hmm. And the exact opposite happened when Dariush fought him. Yep. But he just completely closed down Gamrot's entire game and crushed him and hurt him. And then, yeah, Tsurukian's game just kind of awkward by yeah. comparison against it's, Gamrot. It's the, the fact that it, it really comes down to the fact that Dariush is a better pressure fighter than Tsurukian. Yeah. And so he could stick Gamrot on the back foot while Sarikin was just kind of content to play with him in a middle distance. And, and, and I think being a good, comfortable pressure fighter could really work against Sarukian. It could. It's not great on the back foot, and it takes his kicking game away, and he may not have the reactive takedowns, which usually alleviates what is clearly a very uncomfortable direction for him. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't I would not uh put Dariush certainly any wider than he already is as an no. underdog. Yeah. Like I say, I kind of feel like so you can might grab an early round while he's fresh and then lose and start getting put on the back foot and start having a lot of trouble. Yeah. And then we might be looking at those fourth and fifth rounds and saying, 
can 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 so you can rally back will Darius fade fighting into a part of the fight that he's never been in before even as long as he's as, as much experience as he has mm-hmm. so i'm picking so you can but it's you know i think if you, i think this will be a very hairy fight by the mm-hmm. end mm-hmm. And it might be one of those fights too where we're really talking like okay sure so you can had three rounds of control where the score was very debatable where he got hit a few harder a few times, but he, mm-hmm. he got takedowns and held some position or things like that, or he landed more, but got hit harder. And you're weighing that against like one or two rounds where Dariush clearly won and everybody knows he won. And then you're saying, okay, well, in a fight, you know, we often have said, if you've got a close fight, you take the fighter who clearly won one round. Sure. As the more likely fighter to win. And I would not be surprised if Dariush is more likely to, to have the cleaner round single round win, you know? So now we've said all this and, and Sorokin's going to knock Dariush out. Yeah. Yeah. Just watch. I know. All right. That brings us to a our coming event, Jalen Turner, Bobby Green, and God, I hate like <laughs> I hate the way I feel about this fight because Bobby Green he just went out and absolutely iced uh What's his name? Grant Grant Dawson. Dawson. Mm -hmm. And in a way that, you know, Dawson was definitely heading towards. And I didn't think Bobby Green could be the guy to do it. He, He restored order to the universe in that fight, Bobby Green. And now I'm looking at Jalen Turner and I'm one of the things that struck me right away is Bobby Green has never really fought someone that much taller than him. Yeah. Ever. Like, I guess, or if he did, now I'm mean, even Alan Patrick is only 5'11. And Patrick, maybe James Krause is a similar rangy kind of fighter. Yeah, but that's, you know, you're really talking. Yeah, Krause is 6'2". That's yeah. like a whole different era of Bobby Green. And Krause's reach is only 73 inches. Turner has uh, is 77. He's got a whole 6-inch reach advantage. Yeah. So the first part of me is just like, I think Jalen Turner is just too long and rangy at a at a range where Bobby Green is used to being able to mm-hmm. depend on casual elusiveness, you know? Like Green really likes to be at the edge of the pot dipping in and out at the edge of the pocket. Yep. And ha- be able to just sort of slip and dodge at that edge. On a at the edge of a range where he feels like he can't be hit, so mm-hmm. it's okay if the slipping and the dodging is a little 
you know, it's okay if he guesses wrong, basically, because he's probably going to be out of range anyway. In the pocket, he's 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 a very good, you know, he slips well there as well, but it's it's much more combined in the pocket with offense, where his defense is working on like oh a slip and count or something like that. It doesn't have to be as uh, I don't know how to how to, like it, there's more natural flow there in the mm-hmm. pocket for what he expects. And out at the edge of range, it's more like, oh, you know, I've got my hands down and I'm backing up and I'm not that worried because I'm I'm outside of range. Mm-hmm. So I really have a feeling like Jalen Turner could be huge trouble there. Uh, yeah. Even, you know, even Tony Ferguson caught Bobby Green really cold early in their fight there. And mm-hmm. dropped him, and and made a lot of his uh, sort of countering and and a lot of his stick and move game look more awkward than I'm used to seeing it. Yeah, and we've we've been talking lately about the fact that too Bobby Green is, I think he's trying to be a much more flat-footed power puncher, which paid off big against Grant Dawson. But it has me, you know, it was worrisome against Jared Gordon and Drew Dober. Basically, he's he's willing to try to sit down in front of people more and take mm-hmm. shots earlier, at least. Yeah, he's always kind of done that late, but he's he's trying to yeah. he's trying to get his uh, licks in earlier and put a stamp on the fight earlier these days. Yeah. And yet the thing that really has me feeling like I don't like my read on this. Remember how it, one of the things that we, we came back around to with Grant Dawson and looked at him and we're like, yeah, that just doesn't survive at a high level mm-hmm. with striking defense mm-hmm. and how Grant Dawson eats literally everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jalen Turner's is worse, at least by the numbers. Jay, this is the thing. Is Jalen Turner is counterable. He is the most... He he is as reach insular dependent as you can get. And well, and it's also the fact that he is a fundamentally aggressive fighter. You know, yeah. he's he's a really natural pressure fighter, which is another cause for concern for me. Like I I don't know yeah. if you want to let a guy like Jalen Turner pressure you. Um, on the one hand, Dan Hooker, who is not as slick as Bobby Green. Did that, and while it was difficult, and he had to eat some shots, watching that one live, I do recall the feeling of like, oh, Dan Hooker is starting to outbox Jalen Turner a bit. Yeah, the big thing in that fight was that Jalen Turner would come out and he'd get a one-two, and he would stay in the firefight just yeah. long enough. Get countered with the hook or get stunned with the jab. Hooker would always close the combination. And as the fight went on, that became a it started to become a huge problem. But on the other hand, allowing that kind of that strategic matchup to happen, uh, allowing Jalen Turner to hold on to an initiative and keep uh, beginning the exchanges, Dan Hooker very nearly got KO'd. <laughs> yeah, that's the other <laughs> you know? thing here. 
he got a bunch of counters off, but Jalen Turner doesn't mind getting stung and tagged on the counter if he gets to keep the initiative going. It was not until Hooker got all over him that I think you saw the flip side that exists for many pressure fighters, which is that Jalen Turner can get that's when he gets overwhelmed. Yeah, is when he's put on the back foot and he counters to try to back somebody off and they just don't respect it and they just fight him like, no, actually, I'm the puncher. And it has to be noted that Hooker is the fighter who he can be losing or he can be in a 50-50 firefight. Yeah. And once he starts to get a lever, he will pry that open come hell or high water and blow the fight up for him. Yeah. It is it is what keeps Hooker at the higher levels of the sport is that yeah. he you know, he he has the ability to steal momentum away in an instant and just turn a fight around where you're like, oh, he's getting beat and suddenly like, oh, he's whipping ass. Yeah. And Bobby Green doesn't have that. Then again, third round Bobby Green is a mythical fighter we know and love. Yeah, for good Bobby reason. Green can just build over he can build over the whole fight. He can he 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 can create and get ideas and gain momentum slowly over the whole fight. It's just not that same kind of initiative stealing. Yeah, for sure. So it feels very double edged. Yeah. To me. Like I think Bobby Green is slicker than Dan Hooker. He's much better defensively. Mm-hmm. If Dan Hooker can sort of figure you out off the back foot and start sticking and moving and countering when you overswing, then Bobby Green can damn sure do it. But how safe is it to possibly let Jalen Turner have that fight for three whole rounds and maybe not flip the switch like Dan Hooker did, not have the ability to just start swarming Jalen Turner and putting some fear in him? Yeah. And if you can't, do, does Jalen Turner have to care that he's getting tagged with jabs and countered? If he can eat him, whatever. He yeah. is himself a he is himself a good building fighter, a really creative combination puncher. Um shit, maybe this is a fight where he has to worry about the wrestling threat le- less than most and can step really confidently into the clinch. We know he's good at that. Mm-hmm. Leveraging his uh mid-range long range into mid range into the clinch where, you know, and striking dangerously in every single, every single distance. Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a very tough fight to call. It is for different reasons than the main one. It just seems like both guys might want the same fight. And it's not entirely clear who has the edge there. Yeah. It is usually natural pressure fighters with big power who actually beat Bobby Green. It's Drew Dober. It's Dustin Poirier. Even Rafael Fiziev. Of course, he gassed and pretty decisively lost the third round as a result. Uh, The question is, is uh, is Jalen Turner more of a Drew Dober, Dustin Poirier? Or is he... How much of a Nasrat Hawk Perast is he? Yeah. How unstructured is he as a pressure fighter? <laughs> I think I'm going to go with Bobby Green. I 
I'm glad somebody is. I just think Turner's defense is too bad. And, it, you know, like... I don't know. Yeah, I just... I'm I'm glad you're picking him. I was man. I mean, I I I talked about this fight just yesterday and with uh, Phil, and I was so sorely tempted to pick Bobby Green. I wouldn't. I'm, I'm trying to do gut feeling picks these days. You yeah. Know? But I didn't. I didn't have a strong gut feeling on this one. But I wanted to pick Bobby Green. Yeah, the fact that he got knocked out by Drew Dober, because that's the other thing. <sighs> Turner can, you know, he can get on top of somebody too. If he can, Green's a good wrestler, but He's, Turner yeah. is huge. And if he can, I, get I'd on be, top su- of I'd be surprised if he could. Yeah. But he, but he doesn't have to take him down. I mean, the other thing no. is, like I said, the clinch, and maybe that's yeah. a really nice way to work around Bobby Green's excellent pocket defense. Is okay. What if I just you slip and I grab your head and knee you in the face? That's oh, true. The no, size I'm... and the power and the idea of letting Jalen Turner walk forward for the better part of three rounds is very concerning to me, which is yeah. why I ended up picking him. But and I'm going to pick him here. But yeah, I'm going to go with Green. I'm going to go with Green. Take the take the chance. I just don't like how bad his defense is, and. I think at the highest levels, his offense is not so incredibly varied that yeah. he can thrive while getting hit. Like, Jamie Malarkey landed like 55, 60% of the strikes he threw at Jalen Turner. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. I'm I'm going to go with it, but... It's a tough fight to pick. It's a good fight, you know? Mm-hmm. All right. Turner opened at minus 219, currently minus 207. Or, uh, let's see, Bovada line has him opened at minus 260, currently minus 220. Ooh, there, there is also the fact, just to maybe bolster your confidence a bit, that um, I'm not sure how short of a notice this is. Mm. But Jalen Turner did take this fight on. Yeah. Screen. Uh, uh, he took it on about a week and a half yeah. or a week. Yeah, a week and a half. week and a half's notice. So that could be another reason. Bobby Green could yeah. be a tricky guy to prepare for if you don't have enough time. This was supposed to be uh, a five-round fight. Oh, between, yeah. Between Bobby Green and Dan Hooker. Which would have been Damn cool. it, that was such a good fight. That would have been cool. This is a fantastic replacement matchup. It is. So much so that you just look at it, you're like, yeah, great fight. I love it, but Five-round, non-main event. Yeah, Hooker and Green, non-main event, non-title, five-round. We're talking about with Hooker that he could totally be overwhelmed by Green for long stretches and just be like, oh, I landed one elbow and it shook Green up. Here are five more. And I suddenly, you know, Hooker is back. It would have been fun. It would have been cool. <laughs> yeah. So not to bum you out, but this is a good fight too. Maybe that uh, changes um, how you feel about Turner's chances too, that it's uh, a short notice villain. 
green opened at plus 200, currently at plus 180. So the lines are closing. I say Turner opened at minus 260, currently minus 220. I think they should be getting closer and closer. Um, yeah. Especially over three rounds. It's just... I think there's a lot of room in this fight in a short amount of time for either guy to have big moments. Like Turner is just so live, die by the sword, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much every win he's gotten isn't knockout. Yep. And knockout or, uh, you know, punch and sub kind of finish. And his losses are, Fights where it seems like he could have gotten the knockout, and then his opponent just fights through and fights really hard. And, and they're, they're they're generally tough and close decisions, though. Yeah, you know, it's a great so, matchup. It is. I'm glad oh. you're picking Bobby Green. Somebody had I, to do it. Somebody had to do it. It's gonna be me. All right, that brings us to a bantamweight bout: Rob Font, Davison Figueredo, and. Another very interesting fight, Davison Figueredo's bantamweight debut. Yeah. I was actually unsure about that. I was like, man, this guy's sort of, you know, not had a great time with the flyweight cut for a while. He's always been a pretty beefy bantamweight. Surely he's fought at bantamweight before, but no, he never has, as far as I can tell. Straight up his debut at 35 years old. I think it, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. He's had a very long series of Brandon Moreno, which has arguably perhaps broken him in some way. Like said this was just real a little bit like those two just spent so much time yeah. caring only about one another that they kind of forgot how to fight everybody else. That could be the case. I um but you know, basically like the title picture looks dead for Figueredo at Flyweight. Why yep. not go up to 135, alleviate that awful weight cut, and yep. uh, see what you can do? But I don't have a great feeling about it. I don't either. <laughs> I don't think he really wants to do it. Yeah. Um, I don't think he would have done it if he if he hadn't, you know, he'd still be flyweight champ. You yeah. Know, he would have, or at least would have been the guy fighting Pantoja if he'd won that last fight. Like, I. He would not have seemed, moved up of his own volition. There seemed to be a lot of disagreement in his camp and it, with his team. Because, like, it, you know, there was talk about him going up to Bantamweight to fight Dominic Cruz like a year ago. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, no, my team says I should stay at Flyweight or yada. And it just was like this whole thing. And it's just like, you know, I, I get that you have managers and coaches yeah. and everything, but. It's your body and your career, you know, go where you want to be. Yeah, who knows? Um, And so it does seem like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily been the most natural, easy, oh, yeah, this is something I want to do. And I've just, you know, I'm doing it. Yeah. And um, a little bit like the Anthony Pettis flyweight. Or no, featherweight move. Mm. But fortunately, going up a division, which I'm much more okay with. Yeah, I'm much, much happier about that. That being said, uh, Rob Font's a big bantamweight. He is. And Dave, Davison Figueredo is not. He's, he's 
He's thick, he's thick but, but he's, he's not five tall. foot five. Yeah. Uh, Rob Fawn, if I recall correctly, is three inches taller, has a three and a half reach advantage on top of that. Yeah. Um, Rob Fawn is a jabbing machine. I mean, in a weird way, yeah. his style sort of poses a lot of the same threats as Brandon Moreno's. Yep. But with the addition of being bigger and harder hitting, this is something that... Uh, was too easy to forget, given that Rob Font had those two brutal, tragic fights with Cheeto Vera and Jose Aldo. Rob Font is like, I'm oh, sorry. Go on. I was going to say, he has some of the weirdest power I've ever seen in MMA, in that it's like clearly much bigger and better than the rank and file, like lower tier bantamweights. Yeah. And then you see him in against like a top tier bantamweight, and you're like, oh, you don't hit that hard. Yeah, he's like the Calvin Cater of this division. Yeah. Cater's a perfectly healthy puncher. The dude can crack, but you don't go into a matchup with him and, like, Josh Emmett, and you're like, okay, Josh Emmett is a serious power puncher. Yeah. But make no mistake, Rob Font hits hard. Um, Yeah, we saw this fight with Adrian Yanez, and it's like, oh, okay. Rob Font hits harder than Adrian Yanez. And then he saw Rob Font against Marlon Vera, and it's like, oh, he can land 10 shots, and Marlon nobody, Vera lands one, and you're like, okay, well. Nobody hits hard enough to hurt Cheeto Vera, <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. And he couldn't hit Jose Aldo cleanly enough with anything other than the jab to hurt him. Yeah. But yeah, we saw Giannis when Aaron made the mistake of looking at those previous fights, we assume, and being like, oh, this dude gets hit and hurt by power punchers. Let's trade. Yeah. And yeah, don't forget, Rob Font can hit too. Yep. Um, and I hope that moving up to 135 is a boon for Davison's chin. Mm-hmm. Because the thing with that series of Brandon Moreno is that it, it seemed to have not only revealed um, a new fragility to Davison that was certainly not there before. Yeah. Like, this is the guy who went in there three rounds of war with Alessandro Pantoja, a huge puncher by flyweight standards, and just ate everything he had and hit him twice as hard in return. Brandon Moreno survived a ton of uh, action and then hurt him in their first fight. And ever since then, it seemed that Davison not only became more fragile— but was aware that he could be hurt. Yeah, I mean, I think what what, what uh, Moreno really did is he found a crack in in, in Figueroa's confidence. Exactly, and he looked very shaky throughout that entire series, even the fight he won. Yep. Very shaky and willing to concede ground, and not just not as up to bravely like enter exchanges as he mm-hmm. was before. Um, and so even if the move to 135 does help his chin recover, and maybe that's why he's been pushing for it longer than his team. He's like, I yeah. just don't feel good at 125 anymore. Yeah. It might be too late because he has he has now had a ton of fights where he just doesn't feel confident in his ability to take shots. And that was literally essential to his style before the Moreno fights. Yeah. He's not a great defensive. No. The thing, a, 
good defensive fighter. He needs his chin. And no, it's all been, always been a gamble with him. It's like, I'm going to jump into the pocket and you will hit me. And the counter I hit you with will be yeah. so much harder that you will not want to keep trying to hit me. Because yeah. it used to what we used to see out of Figueredo too was if somebody could swing through that pocket exchange, I think this is what happened with Brandon Moreno. Mm-hmm. Is if somebody didn't get overawed by that pocket exchange with Figueredo, his defense fell apart. Yeah, he he his foot feet were totally out of position. He was straight up in the air, and he didn't have any way to defend follow up strikes. Mm-hmm. But he was a absolute beast powerhouse. Nobody was gonna stay and challenge that. And unbreakable. Yeah, and un- well, and acted like he was unbreakable. You know. Yeah, like I mean just... the thing was that nobody was gonna stay in and challenge that to find out. And Brandon Moreno did. Brandon Moreno was like, okay, well, I'm just going to stay here and keep throwing and let's find out what happens. Yeah. And that kind of opened a chasm where it's just like, okay, actually, I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. And maybe now it's too late for the possible benefits of a, um, of a much needed weight class change to actually be felt because Mm -hmm. the damage has been done to Figueredo's psyche. Uh, that is at least a distinct possibility. And I just kind of have to pick Rob Font. Yeah, I will say we've seen Rob Font hurt a lot, but that is a man who is totally unbroken by yeah. the shots that he's taken. Yeah. Never knocked out. And you had that fight with Adrian Giannis. Giannis is out there talking about Rob Font. is just like, fine, I'll sit right here and we'll, we'll keep, we'll make this happen. You know, yep. he's a pro. Very, very within himself in mm-hmm. the fights he's having, even if they're not going his way. We saw him, you know, he went through hell against Vera and Aldo and never stopped trying to implement what he thought the right game plan was. Mm-hmm. So oh, it's tough because, I mean, I, I can also see the potential or Figueredo to have that Marlon Vera kind of fight where he just has the next level of power that Font doesn't have. Sure. And Font goes out there and can put hands on him and just meets that one shot for every five or every three or whatever and gets hurt. And you're looking at rounds and you're saying, well, Font did the work, but Figueredo landed the big shots but the 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 level of both durability and confidence that that yeah. fight demanded of Cheeto Vera yeah Cheeto is the really... and the level of the level of confidence and defensive skill and counterpunching skill that the Jose Aldo fight demanded of Jose Aldo yeah. does Davison Figueroa have either of those two things to complement his power I don't think so I don't think so. And if you don't, then you're just on the end of Rob Font's jab, just getting yeah. set up for something worse and stabbed and having your face busted up. And, you know, you like, look at, like the Corey Sandhagen wrestling fight as, a, oh, well, maybe there's another wrinkle there. But yeah, one of the things Corey Sandhagen had on Rob Font that makes a whole huge difference when you're going out trying to wrestle somebody is size. Yeah. Yeah. And 
Figueredo doesn't have that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to pick Rob Font, too. I I hate to see it for Figueredo. I, I'd, I'd like to think that he can make something out of this move. But I don't know. I, uh, it's trouble with Bantam. I don't even know if there are like much easier matchups. Like probably the best thing for for Figgy would have been to get a like an unranked opponent. Yeah, but that was never going to happen. Uh, Figgy opened at plus one sixty three. Is currently down at plus one thirty two. Font opened at minus one eighty two. Currently at minus one forty seven. So those odds are getting closer, but Font still the favorite. All right. That takes us to Sean Brady, Kelvin Gastelum, and I'm probably going to regret saying this <laughs> because he doesn't ever actually have – this is this – is, okay. Kelvin Gastelum doesn't ever actually have easy fights. Never happens. Um, and Sean Brady has only lost once. Yeah. I feel like this is just a to me a really clear call for Kelvin Gastelum. I kind of had the same feeling. Like seeing that Bilal Muhammad fight, like the the thing is is it does require Kelvin Gastelum to make a good strategic decision. I don't even know that it does, honestly. Really? The the thing with Sean Brady that has come up over and over again and just got really exposed by Bilal Muhammad is that Sean Brady, he can't really support a long, hard fight. Even one he's winning often ends up feeling like it starts to turn against him as it goes. You know, it really made sense that he totally fell apart against Bilal Muhammad when you think of the fight he had against Court McGee. True. Where he won that fight, but getting into the late rounds of that fight, it was like Sean Brady getting stuck on his feet means Sean Brady starts to lose a fight. Is basically how I that is yeah, that is certainly true. It's having having the defensive wrestling. But Does Kelvin have the defensive wrestling? Sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. Like, even Michael Chiesa started to beat Sean Brady in the last round of their fight. Hmm. And Gastelum is just, he, he, if nothing else, he's too hard to submit. And he, like, you don't really see Kelvin Gastelum just getting... You, you see him getting held against the cage. You don't really see him just getting held down ever, you know? Yeah. There's the Chris Weidman loss where he lost by submission, which that is the the big re- the worry for Kelvin Gastelum is that that lost Chris Weidman. Because that was a fight where he just was like, well, I can survive everything. So getting taken down is fine. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, no, actually, Chris Weidman is a really good grappler. And he's huge. He's way bigger than you. Sean Brady doesn't have that. 
There was also the super weird submission loss to Jack Hermanson. Yeah, but just got instantly tapped. And which is also just a Kelvin Gastelum not realizing he's in trouble when he's in trouble. Yeah, let's say this. The only reliable way or the only way at all to actually finish Kelvin Gastelum is to submit him. <laughs> and so, it, yeah, that's something in Sean Brady's. Favor. That is something in Sean Brady's favor. But Sean Brady doesn't have the size on Gastelum that those other fighters had. I don't and I, he doesn't really feel like a dynamic submission threat either. He is a submission grinder. That's true. So for me, I just kind of feel like if Kelvin Gastelum just survives in this fight long enough, Brady is going to start to fade out of it. Yeah. Which that, is why that, that I feel I like it's an easy pick for Gastelum for me, despite the fact that Kelvin Gastelum never has easy fights ever. And Brady has only lost once. So... It doesn't. I don't like it because it doesn't feel like the right no, read. I hate it. it, it but, it's gonna make it's gonna make more people think that Calvin Gastelum is back. Yeah. Well, the truth is that he never left, but he also never got better. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's just just basically just been the guy he is this whole time. Been one long plateau from tough finale on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with all that, uh, particularly the idea that. Um, this fight gets more dangerous. I mean, more dangerous in general, the longer it's kept in the feet. If Sean Brady cannot out wrestle Kelvin Gastelum, then he's in trouble. And later in the fight, he's in trouble. Yeah. Particularly if he's stuck on the feet. I still think there isn't, there is an onus on Gastelum here to make something happen. I think he should pressure. I think he should try to put volume. He should try to stay yeah. in striking There's, range. There are a whole, whole shitload of ways, as always, that Kelvin Gastelum could make a fight easier on himself. That is the thing. Is, and if he doesn't make it easy on himself. He might lose. Like, I mean, he, he can lose. Any yeah, that's the Kelvin thing. It's, he's not he reliable. Lose is not reliable and it's not like Sean Brady has no idea what he's doing on the feet. I mean, if anything, uh, the, that Bilal Muhammad fight is like a massive, uh, double edged result because getting TKO'd by Bilal Muhammad bad. Bad. Yeah. No, no disrespect to Bilal, but that's a bad sign. Yes. This is not the man who should be knocking you out. On the other hand, Probably the best striking I've seen from Sean Brady in that fight. Yeah, he, he's a fighter who, like, this, this is why I say I think even his own success damns him. Yeah. Because he there's a very Adolfo Vieira-ness to Sean Brady. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of, like, a, a really good power grappler forcing himself to do striking the right way. Yeah. And just not loving it. But knowing he's got to force himself, knowing he's got to push himself, and it might shake out to something good in the end, yeah. but getting through it and going through all the stages of it, there's going to be a lot of hell. And I think he probably loves it less than Hadolfo. Yeah. I, Hadolfo, we've talked about this. He just seems like a dude who loves a challenge. Yeah. And as, as soon as it was like exposed to him that like there was a whole aspect of the sport that he really needed to learn. Mm-hmm. He did like a Henry Cejudo. He was like, okay, yep. I'm going to get good at this to the extent that very soon after a humiliating first defeat in the UFC, 
he was in there doing three hard rounds with Chris Curtis. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, doing nearly as well as Calvin Gastelum did. Mm-hmm. Like a really solid showing on the feet. Sean Brady couldn't have done that. No. He would have. There is a probably like, also had a competitive fight with Chris that he would have. It would have just gone quickly downhill about halfway through. There's a confidence wall for Brady. There's a point he hits where something starts yeah. to go wrong, whether it's his cardio or a shot he eats, and he just doesn't want to do it anymore. He doesn't yeah. want to have that striking fight anymore. Yeah, it just has access to a sort of competitive poise, whereas Brady, yeah. he's gotten better at striking, no question. I like to see it, but it still feels like it's because he's like, all right, I guess I have to do this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not... Vieta feels like that man got excited about striking the way Damian Maya got excited about striking and then got excited about wrestling, like learning new things. Great. I'm going to pit myself against everybody. Yeah. Brady, I don't have that feeling. No, Um, I'm picking Gastelum. Yeah, I think I'm going to pick Gastelum, too. I think he could make this fight very hard on himself. This could, in fact, be him getting submitted. It could also be. But he lost to he lost to Neil Magny. That should never have happened. This yeah. could, that could happen to him again. You yeah. Know? Yeah. He lost to Neil Magny. He lost to Darren Till. Yeah. Late late stage Darren Till. Late stage Darren Till. He just went in there and sort of just faffed around and didn't. It just didn't do enough to win. Yeah. Um. But especially if he actually fights aggressively and i mean it looked against chris curtis at the very least he did try to put a pace on chris curtis yeah he he looked like the a fire had been ignited somewhere he looked the, excited. he's finally gotten tired of losing is what it looked like well the thing is with gaslow i don't know if that was just a one fight thing who knows yeah who knows but that is what it looked like he's a relatable man and that he is cyclical and prone to repetitive yeah. bouts of complacency i think uh, and if this is one of those nights, could be tough. If it's, I would still maybe pick him in a narrow win. Yeah. If it's a night where he's fired up, I think he might dust Sean Brady. Yeah. Uh, at some point, maybe halfway through the fight. So yeah, I don't like it either, but I'm picking no. him. Jaslam opened at plus 102, currently plus 101. Sean Brady opened at minus 113, currently minus 112. So they are dead even. And I can see it. I think Gastelum should be a favorite, frankly. Any uh, uh, any prop on Gastelum by uh, TKO? Gastelum, TKO. Let's see. Not that he gets a lot of those. Not that Brady frequently gets KO, but I can see it happening. Let me see here. Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, Gastelum, TKO is... No better, no no lower than plus two seventy five on the books offering it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a really predictable result, but just given Brady's tendency to kind of spiral and do worse as the fight goes on. Yeah, and the fact that he just got TKO'd by one of the lightest punchers in the division <laughs> is not a good sign. Yeah. Like I say, it's been there that that Muhammad loss. It was not a that was not a one off thing for Brady. That is reflective of other fights he's had. That was just the guy who was actually a confident, controlled enough striker to turn what success he was having 
into a landslide. Yeah, but even if Gaslam is clearly a more dangerous dynamic striker than Bilal, it did require that Bilal, the excellent game planner that he is, that performance required that he come into that fight absolutely knowing that he had to walk through everything and keep the pressure up as hard as he could. If he hadn't done that, that result would not have happened, and even being a harder hitter, that result may not have happened. Yeah. It was it was the game plan that did it. All right. That brings us to a lightweight bout. Clay Guida, Joaquin, uh, Joaquin Silva, and uh, yeah, kind of another hard one to call, right? Phil and I uh, discovered a very interesting tidbit about Clay Guida. Uh-huh. I want you to take Did he live in a Winnebago? <laughs> Does he? <laughs> yeah. Wait, that's like, that was the only thing that Joe Rogan would say about Clay Guida for like 10 years. Oh, I've spent so long barely listening to Joe Rogan. I don't remember that. That is like the one fact that everybody knows about Clay Guida is that he lives in an RV. Well, therefore, not an interesting tidbit. No. Everybody knows it except for me, yeah. apparently. Apparently not you. Anyway, sorry. I, I want you to guess... When was the last time Clay Guida beat an opponent who was definitively still in their prime? I'm looking at Clay Guida's record right now. I'm closing the record. I am going to say 2015. I think it's fair to say that it was 2011. <laughs> and it I'm was tickled. Anthony Pettis. That Here are is, his wins after that. Hatsuhioki, you know, on the downslide. Tatsuya Kawajiri, still good, but an old man with a long record ahead of behind him at that point. Yep. Robbie Peralta, Eric Koch, this is in 2017. Joe Lozon in 2017. BJ Penn in 2019. Yeah. And then it's Michael Johnson, Leo Santos, and That's Scott Holzman right before he retired. Yep. Those are his wins. They are all of them old dudes who are ready to quit. <laughs> oh, congratulations, because Joe Kim Silva is uh, 36. So he's no, he's 34. Oh, he's 34. Okay, he's been around forever. For a dude who's only 34. Yeah, but I don't think he's out of his physical prime. He's a no, no. beast of an athlete. Yeah. And alongside this incredible run of uh, past their prime wins, you can also see a pattern of the level of opponent it takes to beat Clay Guida slowly declining. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's the the, the, the reason I called this an interesting fight. Yeah. It's hard to pick is not because it's good. It's because Clay Guida is at a point where he's so washed that. I am not sure he can beat anyone in the UFC anymore. <laughs> well, he and still can, you know, but he can, but it's really, we're on the borderline. Yeah. And yet Joaquin Silva, anybody who has tried to take Joaquin Silva down a lot yeah. Yeah. has successfully taken Joaquin Silva down a lot. That is my feeling. Exactly. If this was Clay Guida, not even in his prime, but Clay no. Guida five years ago, because uh, I think this man was, you know, I still remember when Chad Mendez was the first dude to knock him out. 
that was like, okay, the prime's probably over. That was 2013. Yeah. So the man has been, this is, by the way, a roundabout way of saying massive props to Clay Guida because he has been a very good fighter for an insanely long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that the idea of like, oh, I don't think there's anybody in the UFC left that Clay Guida can really beat anymore. Like, he has had 61 pro fights. He's 41 years old. He's had He's 61 fights. Years old. <laughs> it's a, it's no shame at all. They're starting to struggle to beat even mediocre fighters. It is not even, we are not even in tread off the tires territory. These are rims down the yeah. highway that are significantly ground down. Yeah. <laughs> on rims. Kalikwita has been throwing up sparks for years. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, Clay Guida, even five years ago, you would look at this and be like, okay, he's going to out wrestle Silva, right? Yeah. So that's the thing is this, this is a more forgiving style matchup for Clay than Rafa Garcia was. Yeah. Then even Claudio Poyas, who is easy to take down, but happy to be there. Um, easier than Leo Santos. Yep. You know, like. Joachim Silva can be taken down and he and that's a great avenue. He is the spiritual successor to Vitor Belfort in yes. every single way imaginable. Absolutely. Uh but he's also just a beast. He is just a beast. He he is he is built like a brick shit house. He hits super hard and even as good an athlete and as good a wrestler grappler as Armand Sarukian had to put a lot of concerted effort in to actually start definitively out wrestling Silva just yeah. because of his strength. Yeah. But he was not able to get him down and hold him there. He had to spend basically the entirety of their first round wearing on him mm-hmm. and ended up in a scary spot in round two uh, when he fell into striking with him. I'm I'm gonna pick take Joachim Silva because he's yeah. this is basically a card where I'm taking the young athletes. So yeah, and and this 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 looks like another case where I just feel compelled to do that. I think you have to take <laughs> Silva here. I mean, the big thing with Clay Guida is that you look at his last couple fights against Holtzman and Garcia. Yeah, and Clay sure Clay Guida got. He got some takedowns against Scott Holtzman and got some control time too. Another guy that is who is arguably like as close to free to take down as you can get and still be yeah. an, an effective UFC fighter. And literally the whole time against Scott Holtzman, what ended up being a split decision win for Clay Guida, I was just screaming at the TV, just fucking punch him <laughs> god, god for christ's sake just punch just him. punch him he is sitting in front of you bobbing his head jumping in on the same rhythm every time yeah. just punch the man just do a trial one two and literally the next fight clay guida had he went out there against rafa garcia yeah and garcia just let his hands go and breezed through that fight. Yeah. So, but Hey, Rafa Garcia, 
pretty rock solid wrestler. Rock solid wrestler and willing to just sit on a jab and be throw the same combination over and over again. Yeah. Joe Kim Silva is not willing to do that. Not nearly that solid in, in any respect, but no. again, physically. But just punch him. For <laughs> and he will Joe do that. Kim. He will try to punch him. It's going to be messier. He's going to throw himself off balance, but he's going to do it with speed and and effect. Yes, he is. He is. He is a seriously imposing uh, athlete. Yeah. So I'll take Joakim Silva too. But God, God damn it, I will be so. It ends up being a weirdly interesting matchup. It does. Like I say, it's a close fight, not for any good reason. Like it's, I, I, I kind of like it. You know. Yeah. And I say uh, Clay Guida. You know, clearly he's just going to do it for as long as they let him. And you know, whatever. More power to him. He and, and respect. He's you know been what a they should beast. do as a, a fine, as a what would be like the perfect ride off into the sunset fight? Yeah, BJ Penn again. No, God, no. We <laughs> <laughs> need to see BJ Penn for any reason. Clay Guida against Darren Elkins. Oh yeah, that sounds great. Right? Yeah, that would be a great fight. That would be the pure uh, Ed. What was it? Ed Herman against uh, uh, Zach Cummings mm-hmm. fight that that, ha- that went down recently, mm-hmm. where they just went after it, and then they both retired afterward, mm-hmm. and they were both super emotional about it. And you were just like, man, beautiful, beautiful. That was beautiful. Yeah, I would love to see that for Darren Elkins and Clay Guida. Not in the same weight division, but they they, they could. Clay Guida's oh, they not a big it. lightweight. Darren Elkins could go back up. They could do it. Let's yeah, let's make it at 150. You know, if you got to do a catch weight, go sure. for it. Uh, odds on the fight. Guida is a sizable underdog. Opened at plus 180. Currently at plus 258. Joe Kim Silva opened at minus 203, currently at minus 305. 100% one of those fights that, like, you go back five years ago and there's no question who I'm picking. Yeah. And now I'm like, mm, <clears throat> no, can't do it. Yep. All right. That brings us to our final fight of the main card. Punahele Soriano, Dustin Stoltzfus. And, um... I'm picking Soriano because Dustin Stoltzfus is literally the slowest man on the UFC roster. And if Soriano can't win this, then something is broken in a fighter that should be very like Soriano is getting into that territory of, um, Mm -hmm. Oh, who was that other coconut bombs, that Hawaiian other Hawaiian fighter. Mm. I know exactly who you're talking about. Let me think of the name. Maki Patolo. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Maki yeah. Patolo. He is starting to get into Maki Patolo territory where you would watch Maki Patolo do any one thing he liked to do in isolation. And you'd be like, yeah, you know what? This guy's pretty good. He can kind of do everything. Mm-hmm. Big puncher in the pocket, could throw in good combination. Had some real like smoothness to his uh, to his power transfer. Could hit takedowns. Could scramble with people. 
but everything could only be done in isolation and he could absolutely just be trapped into any one kind of fight where he was losing and just stuck there. Mm-hmm. And is, this a, is this just a thing with Hawaiian fighters? I don't know. It also kind of sounds like Russell Doan. Yeah, or um, Russell Doan. Kai Kamaka. Or Kai Kamaka. Yeah. We, weird, <laughs> weird consistency of like really technically uh, sharp, but weirdly like aimless fighters. Yeah. yeah, disjointed. Yeah. And Punaheli Soriano, like he's kind of feeling the same. Like I've seen this dude scramble to no end with Nick Maximoff. He should like, be a he should be a great fighter, is what you're saying. Like he yeah. has all the makings of like a super prospect. He looks big and strong, and he hits really hard, and he's clearly like a natural. Like yeah. Uh, just there's not really anywhere in the fight where he looks uncomfortable, where he's he, he can take a shot. He's a pretty natural counter puncher. And then you kind of have to sit down and look at his record and think, yeah, is Oscar Peixota the best fighter he's ever beat? Yeah. Might be. I mean, yes, is, is the answer, yeah. right? Yeah. And everybody else he's beating is really bad. Or yeah. really, like, their game is really thin. Yep. Dustin Soltzwitz falls right in line with that. Yes, for sure. But I'm worried about Punaheli Soriano. This is a dude who should be much better than he is. Yeah. He just so. has not turned to that corner. We were hoping to see him turn when he... Because I'm sure when he debuted, we were like, oh, this dude has something. Yeah. He's got power. He looks really naturally comfortable in the pocket. He can scramble, like really good defensive wrestling across the board yep. and yep just sort of aimless in yeah. fights and doesn't seem to have any idea of how to like bank rounds <laughs> you know how to like uh, i don't know and there's even fights where he's like putting huge damage to people with body punches but it just does not feel like part of a cohesive game plan ever no i don't know but yeah, yeah. you gotta pick him here you got to pick him, but Soltzfus is not particularly well-rounded as a technician. And as you said, he is very slow. He's just insanely slow. He's just a fighter. You watch it. It is a testament to how bad. Uh, Dwight Grant's confidence is and how bad Dwight Grant's sparring partner syndrome was. Mm as a, a an aka guy in the gym mm-hmm. that he was like three times faster than Dustin Stoltzfus and just couldn't stop Stoltzfus from beating him up. Yeah. Because you watch that fight and you watch them both throw strikes like the hell is this? Yeah. Dwight's just a really dysfunctional fighter. Yeah. Stoltzfus is he's got all the determination of a good fighter. Mm-hmm. But it, it is really, I feel bad for Abus Magomedov that that was the fight that he got straight out of the gate hmm. in the UFC. Because it's like, okay, you, you got him that huge highlight KO. And everybody's like, oh, my God, they throw him straight in with Sean Strickland. It's like, you guys got to realize he just knocked out the slowest fighter in the division. Yes. Like, 
That says nothing about how he measures up against anyone. Yeah. At all. You know? So, yeah. Winning a decision over Sadabu C in PFL is a much better... Mm-hmm. Or drawing Gas- Gasanu Molotov is a much better mark of how, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Abus Magomedov is. So, all right. Rant over. Uh, Soriano is a healthy favorite. Opened at minus 272, currently minus 292. Stoltz was opened at plus 233, currently plus 248. Should be wider, but Soriano's in can't-trust-him territory. Yep. All right. On that note, we're going to wrap things up. If you are a Substack subscriber, tune in. We're going to have some bonus content for you. If you're not, this is the time to subscribe. Help us out. Keep Bloody Elbow running. Keep our show running. Keep Connor in cat food. (laughs) For my cat. (laughs) For my cat. For his air quotes cat. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, Go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcasts and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey, Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection Main Card and Prelims UFC Preview Shows, the Sixth Round Post-Fight Show, the Show Money Podcast, and the MMA Depressed Us.